Welcome to Precept Responsibly, a podcast working to make precepting approachable over happy hour. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm David Hughes. Let's get into some precepting. So we took March off because we got lazy. No, just kidding. I mean, things get, things get busy. <laughs> Ugh, things got crazy. Busy. We know we know everyone's crazy, but everyone missed us. And yes. We are back. But we're back. And live. And live. I, I didn't emphasize that point enough. Um, live in the month of March to drop this recording um, from our March event. Mm. Yep. We were uh, we went to Seminar by the Sea, uh, hosted by the University of Rhode Island School of Pharmacy. Um, we hope you guys really enjoy the episode. Uh, it's it's a little bit long, about an hour and 45 minutes, but great discussion across a great uh, large panel. Uh, Dave, you know, as usual, makes fun of himself throughout the entire thing. Typical. Um, if you're a Yankees fan, I'm sorry. It gets off to a rough start. You know, this is know. New England. <laughs> shout out, shout out specifically to a couple of our friends at, at the University of Rhode Island, Brett and Liz, for dealing with us one and uh, putting this together and, and offering us to come live and, and trench the waters with us. So thank you to them and, and thank Absolutely. you to, to Monica, Brittany, and Allison are three panelists who I, I think you'll you'll enjoy all different perspectives on in this episode. We were really happy to to have them and and be in this atmosphere together. Absolutely, and a uh, big shout out to our, our uh, producer Spencer Sutton who held the whole thing together across that hour and forty five minutes. Even refreshed our drinks partway through. May or may not have gotten us in a little trouble there, but uh, you know, uh, definitely and, appreciate and, you him know, for all of his did- work. We did get claps in person for those of you that didn't that thought we might not <laughs> and no one would laugh at us. Uh, but we did, believe it or not. Yep. And you know, we got so many claps it didn't come across <laughs> clearly in the audio. It um, uh yeah, it got filtered out because it was so loud the the microphone just couldn't pick it up. No, but in some seriousness, <laughs> there was a lot of audience participation. We we thank the audience members for being so active and engaged. There were a lot of cheers, claps, but it did get muffled a bit in the audio. Jason and I took the liberty. Well, Jason did. <laughs> took the liberty to to kind of cut that out, filter it out, and make it sound like a, a little bit more attractive from, from a listener-only perspective. So you might see something that sounds a little bit um, recorded. It is recorded. Um, disclaimer. <laughs> But anyway, I, I hope you all enjoy the episode. You know, last little thing I want to do is Jason and I are on this venture together and we we, we enjoy doing this. It was a learning opportunity. So if, if you think that you or someone you may know would want a live event, reach out to us. We're more than willing to to listen in and, and see if you wanted it to uh, to bring two knuckleheads on site and, and talk precept <laughs> responsibly. Absolutely. Send us an email, uh, precept responsibly at gmail.com. We'll get back to you. We would love to have a chance to come uh, visit some folks and, and talk precepting. Or just message us on Twitter. Yeah, that too. Yeah. All right. Enjoy the, ep- enjoy the enjoy. episode. Jason, this is our first time live. I, you know, we skipped our March episode. Apologize to all of the listeners and those that did listen to it. But this is our first time live. We are going to be going on um today <laughs> we're doing this is we're doing it live, doing live. it's yeah, weird doing a live. podcast live up front when you have people in front of you so i apologize yeah maybe um you guys can start by giving us just a quick clap so that <laughs> you can <laughs> actually hear. 
<laughs> thank you. We did talk about potentially adding it if there weren't uh, more than a few people here. So um, thank you to the audience for joining us. Uh, as Dave quickly said, I'm Jason. He's Dave. Um, we're the host of Preset Responsibly. Um, we're really excited to do uh, a live session for y'all. Um, if you feel like joining in on our jokes, please feel free to laugh along. Uh, Dave's going to be the butt of them. I'm sure Monica's going to make me pay my pay my dues as a former uh, mentor of mine. Still mentor, but uh, former educator of mine. She keeps me on my toes. Um, so, Dave, what are you drinking today? Oh yeah, uh, for our podcast. Yeah. I have. Well, you know, for the new year this year, I decided. Well, my doctor told me I needed to lose weight, so I am drinking a broccoli double IPA. It's called broccoli, <laughs> and I felt like it'd be healthy. So this is an IPA from upstate New York. Go Yankees! What about you, Jay? Well, I because it's uh, just after St. Patrick's Day, I'm drinking a Guinness. It's also my uh, kind of drink of choice whenever we go out to plan these episodes. Um, so I'm having a, a Guinness. All right. I, I think it's most important to introduce our esteemed panelists here. So thank you, all three of you, for, for being here today. Um, we heard a brief introduction of, of Liz, Monica. Um, I'd like to just introduce everyone. So Monica comes from the academic health system setting, um, most recently transitioned to the ambulatory space. Monica, can you share maybe a quick snippet about yourself and what you're drinking tonight? Put on the spot, my goodness, no. Um, myself, so I've been well, a preceptor now for way too long. Let's not do the math. Um, some of my former trainees are in this room. There are at least two. I should say I have a decade of experience. I have more than a decade of experience. <laughs> um, and I think I am the lone Android listener on your podcast. So when you, oh, well, we got two. You're the other one. <laughs> we found the two. How come there were no booze for her? I'm the pretty one. Um, and what am I drinking? So uh, randomly, I found a preset responsibly podcast beer. <laughs> it might be coming to a um, packy near you, but uh, this is a sour and it comes highly recommended by that guy over there who ran to the packy to get it for us. So thank you. That's our producer. Always, always getting the short list for us. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Yeah. Packy's Boston. Boston, Connecticut, I don't know. You guys do khaki runs? Okay. I don't know what that is. Sorry. New York. I love the shots. <laughs> All right, Allison, let's, let's turn it over to you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, unlike Monica, I have not been a preceptor long enough. Um, it's been about three to six months for me, I think, but um, I work at Pfizer. I did my fellowship in HEOR at Pfizer, um, so did have a preceptor there, and then shortly after that, transitioned to a full-time role and then became a preceptor, kind of. So um, I think I hopefully will bring a unique perspective, being a very recent learner trying to transition into an educator. So I'm excited to learn alongside these folks today and then share um, the little bit of wisdom that I might have. So, and then what I'm drinking, I am drinking an other half IPA. Apparently it's from New York. Is that right, Dave? That's right. Yeah. And I did agree to do this before I knew there was going to be beer. Um, I'm <laughs> very excited. Yes. <laughs> but thanks for having me all. 
Um, so I'm Brittany Brown. I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Rhode Island. Um, I graduated from URI a while ago. We don't say years. Um, I did practice um, outside of the state. So unlike what most say, we do leave Rhode Island sometimes. Um, trained in Philly and then Buffalo, go Bills, worked in Vermont, um, and made my way back to Rhode Island. So I currently precept students in an outpatient um, oncology infusion site where we focus on oral anti-cancer therapy. So that's the lens that I'm coming with today, but I've previously done some inpatient precepting and work in a palliative care clinic too. Now, if you're a Phil's fan, does that mean you're also a Yankees fan? Absolutely not. Right, thank you. <laughs> Boston fan. And uh, what's your Oh, I forgot. Um, yes, I have the non-precept responsibly branded juicy fruit, which is <laughs> um, actually a Newport, Rhode Island beer, funnily enough, New Newport Craft Brewery. So thank you for doing that packy run for us. There you go. We all learned Dude, new we're things. We're teaching already. We're teaching already. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you to our panelists for joining us. Um, I know we each have a connection with each one of you, and we, we appreciate you taking the time to meet us here today. Um, we're talking today about... Uh, Learners as extenders, now it's a pretty generic three words you put together, learners as extenders. I think for me, it has a very specific meaning as someone who's been, you know, precepting and educating for about 10 years. Uh, for each one of you, what does it mean in your practice area to use a learner as an extender? How, do, how does that that's going to weird me out. Weird me out. Yeah. That's okay. That's okay. We're on the screen That's behind okay. us. We're trying to figure it out. But um, <laughs> what what does um, being a learner or what does using learners as extenders mean for each one of you in your care area? Maybe we'll start with you, Monica, and then we'll kind of come this way. Sure. Um, so I did a terrible job of describing what my practice setting is. So thank you for this layout back here. Um, so when I transitioned to the outpatient setting, uh, I actually have two <laughs> roles. You okay there? He needs a bit. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I have two roles. Half of my job is supposed to be the ID clinic. So that's patients that come into the outpatient ID, um, follow up for their inpatient stays. Um, they could be receiving care for their HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. We do a lot of um, latent tuberculosis, non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Um, so we have a wide variety of chronic uh, infectious conditions. At the same time, my other half of the position is OPAS, so outpatient parenteral antimicrobial therapy. These are patients that are transitioning from the inpatient uh, setting, going home on long-term intravenous antibiotics, sometimes long-term oral antibiotics, so helping with the transition, and then trying to keep them out of the hospital to complete their therapy. Um, so I have, you know, half FTE in each, but it's really a full-time job in two. So I have two jobs um, that I'm trying to do, sometimes poorly. Um, and day two of my new job, I was already asking for additional help because there is a ton of opportunity. Um, we all know we're pharmacists that there's a lot that we can be doing. We just don't have the time. So having learners, having trainees with me, I am able to train them and then utilize them to do all the things that I would like to do, but I don't have time. Um, it could be answering drug information questions that come in. You know, we, we're experts at putting out fires. So here's a fire, here's a question. You know, um, some of them have more of a rapid turnaround that maybe I'm not able to dedicate that time to. Um, it could be queuing up refill prescriptions for my clinicians. When those queues come in, uh, it's more than just 
sending a refill. It's looking in, when was their last appointment? What was their HIV viral load? Uh, did they have recent labs? Is their CD4 count uh, below a threshold? Do they need additional prophylaxis? Have they been not filling it consistently? There's a lot of other background digging that they could do beyond just queuing up a prescription. Uh, for OPET, it could be calling patients when they go home. Uh, we try to go visit them in the inpatient setting before they get discharged from the hospital to talk about what their antibiotics are, what they're going to get. Um, but then follow up when they go home because now all of a sudden it's like, if anyone's had a baby, you know, you're in the hospital. I swear this transition makes sense. Um, you're in the hospital, you have a baby, you're like, oh, it's cute, it's cuddly. These nurses are helping you out. And then they discharge you and you're like, what do you mean I have to take care of this? You're like, you're not coming home with me? Well, it's the same thing with antibiotics. What do you mean I have IVs? You know, um, I'm not a healthcare provider. I have to administer how many times? What? I have to prime? I have to cap? Um, so just calling up and doing that additional follow-up to see if there's any additional counseling, confusion, missing pieces or parts that they may need. Um, so to not make this all ID, although it really should be, no offense, uh, <laughs> you know, trying to fill in the gaps of what I would like to do, but I don't have time to do. Mm -hmm. I thought all of those were like great examples that you gave on how to use uh, learners as extenders, especially in the clinical setting. I think um, I'm really interested. We were specific about inviting someone in clinical fellowship and um, kind of academia. Mm -hmm. Allison, I'm really interested in how fellowship can use learners to like extend yeah. what they do partially because I don't understand what you do, yeah. but uh, I'd love to hear. Totally fair. So I think I, and also like Monica, I didn't really explain very well what exactly I do and where I sit. But um, as I mentioned, I work in health economics and outcomes research. Um, and so sometimes I think about how do I explain this to where folks understand and has Anyone ever watched Love is Blind? Oh, oh my yes. God, yes. Okay, I, I recently came up with this analogy at a conference and it's really nerdy, but I think it relates. So, you know, Love is Blind is an experiment. It's like a completely controlled environment. It's the perfect setup. Everything is like controlled for it. So two people sitting on in opposite rooms, not being able to talk to one another, but trying to fall in love. So it's a very controlled and like sterilized uh, yeah. setting which kind of is like a randomized controlled trial. So everything is ideal. It's like all completely controlled for it's, you know, televised, scrutinized, like everyone's looking at it. So then what happens when these people who fall in love go into the real world? You know, things behave differently. Their love might not come out the same way. Like it looks different. So that's where I come in with health, health economics and outcomes research. So I look at what happens in the real world. So a lot of my job is real world evidence generation. So trying to understand if what we saw in the clinical trial translates to clinical outcomes, efficacy, and safety in the real world. So all that to say is it's a lot of project management, problem solving. Um, it is not a day-to-day, -day, you know, set schedule where you you know you're going to see a patient and you have these objectives. Um, I think what's really exciting about being a pharmacist in the industry is that we have so many skills that you learn throughout school and um, on your clinical rotations that translate to that those really strong problem-solving skills. So I, I think when I was being precepted, mm -hmm. um, and being used as an extender in the industry, it was a lot of filling those gaps that no one on the team had time to fill. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where students can play a huge role. 
Um, and very similar to what Monica was saying, I think collaboration. So if I'm posed with a research question, which I guess in the industry is very similar to like a drug information question, you know, you're sitting on the clinical or the medical team, something comes up about something that needs to be looked into, who's going to do that? I think it's a great opportunity for a learner to go and dig into that um, while maintaining a conversation with their preceptor. And so I'll say that was my favorite part about being on a learner and something I try to do today as a preceptor is not just ask for the question to go and be researched and come back with an answer, but it's being engaged in that conversation as they're starting to find um, bits and pieces to the answer there. So I know it's very different. Um, it's, that was a great explanation. It's really hard to explain um, what I do. And that's a very limited um, perspective of the industry. But like I said, I think there are a lot of transferable skills um, that pharmacists have that really to the industry. It sounds like you're putting a lot of trust in your learners to answer some of those research questions, kind of do their own uh, assessment, which I think aligns very much with what Monica said. Yeah. Um, Giving, giving up that control is hard. <laughs> Go do it on your own. Come talk to me before you talk to any of the clinicians yeah. and yeah. physicians. Trust yeah. but verify. We are right? certainly going to talk about how to do some oversight at some point. <laughs> so uh, we'll I'll ask you a whole lot of problems. But, um, Brittany, for you, kind of what's your practice site like and how um, how do you see learners as extenders, particularly in academia? It's yeah. like a really unique role. I'm so glad you asked to focus on that. That is something that I forget that I do, even though it's theoretically more than 50% of what I do. <laughs> um, but for those of you who don't know, academia is, um, if you're faculty in a college or pharmacy, you're usually graded on service, research, and um, teaching, of course. And so you can really involve students in all three of those things. Um, so from an academia perspective, um, my service can look like my time spent at my clinical site, but it can also look like time spent on um, additional outside work that I do. So like the farm grad wish list that Jason and I are involved in, um, students have gotten involved in that from a perspective with that too, where it's just helping with some projects that we're working on that we just simply don't have time for, or helping with our social media, which we're just not good at because <laughs> we graduated not recently. Um, I think I have one of those. I logged in once, once, once a year ago. Um, but anyway, so from an academia perspective, I feel like the thing that you would most likely think to uh, think about is teaching, of course. Um, so right now, I actually have two high-performing students that I stole from my rotation because I knew I had my oncology module coming up and a lot of stuff needed to be updated. We have this new curriculum. Like, how am I going to make these recitation activities? Um, and these high-performing students who I knew excelled or had an interest in oncology were able to come on and join me, and they've made a Jeopardy game talking about, uh, you know, VTE management in cancer patients. They've helped me make an additional matching game talking about what regimens can be used for which types of cancers, um, and actually one of these same learners helped me with a kahoot last year when he was going through the didactic material. So it's essentially exactly the same where you're identifying areas where I wish I had the time to make a Jeopardy game for every topic that we talk about, but unfortunately I just don't. Like I do have sometimes a life outside of my 40 hour work week. Um, and so bringing them in helps them to, number one, test whether or not they know the material so I can review it and give them feedback. 
but also to get them engaged in it and really think thoughtfully about it and kind of connect the dots for themselves and kind of deepen their own knowledge. One of the reasons I love academia is because I learn best by teaching. I need to go double fact check myself before I go up for a lecture. So I think in terms of from an academia perspective, that is one area. And then research is another one, but I think we'll probably have time to get to that later. Absolutely. Um, I, think, I think one of the things that's going through my head is, is everyone is kind of describing the high level, you know, tasks that students are doing for them, is there certainly has to be risks in the various practices, right? Like, what is the risk? Are there legal implications? If they're seeing patients on their own in the ambulatory setting, are there, them on their own. <laughs> are there, are, sure, are, are, are there, are there risks? So I guess I wanted to talk uh, at least through a little bit of, of any legal implications that are associated. Brittany, Andrew. I think we might uh, have someone in the room who knows a little bit more about this than I do. I don't know, Brett, do you, do you want to get a microphone and, and share your experience? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just to put a little context, Brett, I think what I'm trying to do is is like think about um, why shouldn't you use learners as extenders first? And then we'll talk about ways to mitigate that before I tell you about all the benefits, right? Like I could certainly sit up here and talk about all the benefits and get you guys excited about it, then tell you about risks, but I really want to know I will, what's the, I will say why I'm shouldn't a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a paralegal. <laughs> What I would say is there are, every time there's a student at a site, there should be some type of affiliation agreement. So within that agreement, usually we'll outline any of the risks. And, you know, most of the time it's related to things like requirements, like, oh, you as a preceptor have to do an evaluation. You as a preceptor must, you know, provide the student some space or, you know, if they fall down the steps, you know, you got to get them emergency surgery. That's one of the things we actually look for because it's not. Um, so, if that's usually the level of detail that are in the contracts, um, there is typically, at least on the URI side, we look at indemnification. So, one of the things I'm trained to look for is that if there is an issue, URI can be responsible, but then we, we call it dual. So then also Boston Medical Center would also have some responsibility. Mm. So no matter what the activity is, usually either URI is gonna be responsible or the site is gonna be responsible. And usually that is shared. So whatever you guys decide to do, um, typically is gonna be somewhat covered in this general umbrella of I don't know if I really answered the question. So if I can put like a fine point to that, which I, I think I understand, but I'm just making sure for our non-paralegal pharmacists. <laughs> really so um, if I have a resident or a student dosing vancomycin, and let's say they make the wrong dosing recommendation, it gets implemented, there's potential patient harm, there's some legal ramification. That would mean that both the organization that's overseeing that student Plus, the university potentially holds some risk. Actually, the university would hold some risk. Okay. But there's also language in some of the contracts related to students, not an employee. And ultimately, it's probably going to fall more on the, the actual preceptor. That's a great point. And I think, um, like, solidifies the point for, for us is that, like, the preceptor is probably the one who's ultimately responsible for every outcome of your life. But I think that becomes the art of it, right? Like being able to give and, and, and use learners as extenders to a certain extent, 
while still providing enough of an oversight. And I think there's a fine balance there, right? Absolutely. Of, of saying like, there are there are plenty of benefits we'll talk about in just a second, but you have to be careful of, of some of the risks that, that Brett just elegantly put much nicer than I could have put. Like stairs. <laughs> like stairs. <There. laughs> yeah. So thinking about that kind of risk uh, portfolio in the task that you ask each of your learners to do, maybe we'll, we'll start kind of this end that way, Brittany. Sure. Um, what are some ways that you try to mitigate the risks of having learners function as extenders for you? That's a great question. Um, I think number one, I look at activities as something that is gonna be mutual ben beneficial. So something that I will benefit from or the site will benefit from, but also the student. So um, in terms of activities that we'll have them do, I always will make sure that I model it for them first, because even if they've done a med rec elsewhere, they haven't done my med rec, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I maybe have a very specific way that I wanna see it done. Um, and so modeling I think is really important, even if this is their 800th med rec because they work in a job where they do med rec in the ED. Um, so modeling is important. And then when they start doing it on their own, of course, I make this is I'm sorry it's the ASHP ASHP preceptor model where I make sure that I'm observing them and kind of coaching them through it and helping them and then eventually with MedRef to be honest patients or students do go and at my site and counsel and do MedRef in, independently with the patient they come back and we have a conversation and we update the medication reconciliation if any follow up is necessary then we'll go back and talk to the patient or call them afterwards um, so they're in that MedRef portion, they're not really doing, they're not giving medication advice without my oversight. They're simply updating it and we're identifying issues and working through those issues together. Um, so that's one example. But I think with anything that I'm doing, I'm at least coaching them through it and showing them how I do it and then allowing them to have that freedom to practice it on their own and maybe take a couple missteps, but under my direct observation. Um. Yeah, Brittany, I think um, I like the idea of like do one, kind of yeah. see one, do it one, teach one, one, right? Exactly. Like that kind of that kind of model. Um, for you specifically, uh, it sounds like the, um, oh God, where am I trying to go with this? Uh, with academia or do you want to go with No, I mean, I think like for you, it sounds like you have a pretty quick transition. How do you avoid maybe um, kind of lost time so that it's not, you modeling a bunch or you having to oversee every little step that they do, like where do you pick the activity of like, okay, this is something I wanna see versus this is something I want you to do independent? Mm, that's a good question. I think that's gonna be very individualized to your learner. Um, so before they start, I ask them, what have you done before? What are you hoping to get from this rotation? Um, what are your weaknesses or what are you working on to improve? And what, are you, what do you self-identify as your strengths? And so from there, we make a plan for what their rotation is going to look like. So if one student has does feel like they've done med rec for years and they are good, then I try to give that to the other learner. And then maybe we focus instead on patient counseling or outreach. Um, and so I guess, does that address your question? Yeah, Hopefully, okay. yeah definitely. Um, 
Monica, anything you want to add from that's like unique or different from your perspective? Sure. Um, so I've never thought about the liability of precepting until today. So thank you for that. Okay. <laughs> I will say that ever since I was a resident, I've carried my own personal liability insurance. So plug for yeah. you guys, please do that as well. Very affordable for pharmacists compared to physicians. Um, and then to answer the, the actual question. So I have different approaches depending on what trainee we're talking about. Mm -hmm. If it's a student, they're not licensed. I have more oversight. If it's a resident who is licensed in the state that they're doing their, their residency, um, I'll still do the, the modeling of the, the first one because you want to set up your trainee for success, right? You just don't throw them into the woods, fire, wolves, whatever <laughs> analogy you want. Um, but after you maybe talk about one or two, then the resident have more free form and then touch base, you know, before or after whatever they're comfortable with. For a student, um, we constantly will discuss, we will role play. Okay, pretend I'm the patient, counsel me, you know, what exactly words are you, are you going to say? And I harp on the words because I think we all know if you have any patient interaction, the words that you use to the patients are important, they're impactful, and you might not realize what you're projecting. Um, so we rehearse that several times over. Um, and then I always make sure that if it's a student, they're always paired with some clinician. If it's myself versus if it's one of my nursing colleagues, if it's one of my physicians, they're not in that patient room by themselves. We've often talked about the pharmacology of it before they, they go in if I'm not there. Um, being in the ambulatory setting, we have a little more flexibility that we can call patients at home. It doesn't have to be then and there when they're physically uh, present for their appointment. So after we've discussed it, they can call I don't have to be on the three-way call. We did that very briefly at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody was remote and I hated it. It worked, but thank goodness we don't have to do that anymore. Um, so I'll just be there listening to their end of the conversation, have them put on hold if there's anything I want to address or if they have any questions. Um, if it's something like dosing vancomycin, shout out to Meg, Je uh, Megan Jeffries, uh, just switching to Linaeslid and they don't have to dose them. Um, but if they are writing some kind of, uh, making a, a dosing recommendation or they're writing a note, then at least policy at our institution is that you need to have co-signed from a licensed clinician or, or one that works there. So they always send a draft to us to review um, and sign off on. Um, additionally, you know, we have a variety of communication methods that we have. We will talk to our uh, physician and nurses in person. We'll send emails. We'll send notes via our electronic health record. Uh, so there's different points of interception throughout there. You know, send me your draft email before you send it out. Obviously, you can send me a draft note before you uh, sign it in the EHR and just, you know, talk to me. Tell me what your thought process is before you go and physically talk to, to the clinician. Um, sometimes you don't have the luxury of time um, and might have to correct and touch base after the fact, uh, but hopefully that's minimal compared to the others. Hey. Yeah, and and I think as I'm as I'm listening, there's there seems to be like um not only do you have like the the oversight ex experience, but at at point different points throughout the learner's journey, whether it's a resident student, there's going to be a different level of appropriateness of of using that learner as an extender, and there could even be as Jason mentioned before, almost like a loss of an extender because you're going to double up on the work and you're going to have have to go that route. So I'm curious is how do you, um, you know, use learners as extenders, but maybe who are not ready for the role? Or how do you identify somebody that is maybe not in, in the, like not able to be used as an extender? Um, I, I think this came to me when I've been precepting for a while. I think 
younger preceptors, bless your hearts, I was one of them too. You're gung-ho. You have such high expectations. You have lots of activities for your trainees to do. Um, and then at least for me, with the benefit of time, I realize I'm like, we don't have to do all this, you know, <laughs> um, it's not a checklist. It's individualized for each trainee. And depending on, like Britt said, what their background was, where did they come from? Also, you know, where are they going? What's their end goal? What's their job when they're done with you? Um, can you design your rotation? And some of us have more flexibility than others to have like a menu of options that you can pick and choose from. Um, if they're not interested in face-to-face um, -face patient contact, uh, can you have other elements that are still central to your job functions or your rotations that doesn't have to put them face-to-face -face with patients? Um, or if you can't adapt it that way, then how can you coach them? How can you get them to the, the point that they could still fulfill the needs, but meet them at where they are as well? Um, and I think at least in the ambulatory setting, I do have more flexibility to pick and choose what activities we're able to do so that we can find something that interests the trainee, fits their skill set. You can build them to where they need to be and then applies to possibly where their job or their next step in their career is. Gotcha. Alice, I'm also curious, like in the in the pharmaceutical world, right? Like you mentioned like a very and a very nice explanation of, of ATOR and how health economics research is. How do you I, I guess use learners as extenders when they, you know, a lot of times they come out of pharmacy school, they're finishing their appies and now they're going into fellowship where the expectation is that they are gonna know how to use and interpret, you know, randomized controlled data. How how do you how do you help make make learners ready so that way they can be used as extenders there. Yeah, yeah, and I was thinking about that. I think the modeling approach is really important, but it's different when the skill is much softer than a med rec. You know, yeah. you can you can model a med rec and how you're going to approach it and like give specific examples. Start here, go here, go here. But when you're faced when you're sitting on a team that ask you a research question out of nowhere, it's a little bit softer. Um, so I think I've tried a couple different approaches. So I've of course like tried to model the way that I would address the research question. And then recently I've kind of just been saying it all out loud and stopping after each one. So I think in the industry side of things, being in a really collaborative um, approach, whether it's research or industry or whatever it is, if it's some type of like softer activity that you don't necessarily have a template for, I think a really open dialogue and not like periodic check-ins like, oh, go get to this point and then come back to me. It's like a, it's a conversation of like, what can we figure out together? And I think something that really helped me too is my preceptor would also kind of be doing background research. Um, and I know that not everyone's time allows for that, but I think even just putting intentional thought behind the question that you asked the learner um, while they're actually digging for it, you're also going through your mind, oh, what, what direction could I point them in? And that's really helped me extend um, softer tasks and help them get inside my brain a little bit more and understand how I would have approached the question. I think that's a little bit of network leverage where like you're identifying what resources you use to get to where you are today. So maybe there's some, like a chapter you can share with them to make exactly. sure that they read to get up to speed or an online resource that helps them identify what the primary literature is. 
Um, and so just like dropping crumbs. Yes, like, exactly. It, it helps exactly a lot. It, it seems silly yeah. in the moment. It's like, I don't need to direct them to itsquare.com, but, <laughs> or .org, whatever it might be, but maybe you do. And it's not, it's not on them. Mm -hmm. It's on me as like a, you know, a educator to help direct them Absolutely. in some way. Um, I think like we've all kind of danced around like a few different things that we do. I'm curious in like just a really brief fashion, like you talk about a menu of options that you can like <laughs> provide people. Like what's a, what's a a la carte uh, Mahoney rotation look like? And what are some of the like repeatable tasks that, that learners can function as extenders for you? Brittany, I'll ask you the same thing. And then I might pull the audience to start thinking about like what you guys do uh, as well. Yeah, um, so because I, am technically one FTE, but have two FTE jobs that I'm performing, um, I can only function in more of a reactive setting. You know, I would love to be more proactive, but my current time, space, me restrictions don't allow that. Um, so it's more of the forcing yourself out there. Uh, and it always sounds funny when I describe that to, to my trainees that way, but I'm like, what can you um, insert yourself in? You know, um, if you see a patient with one of our physicians, clinicians, can you proactively like, I'll call that patient in two days to see how they're doing on their new medication, or mm -hmm. I will uh, follow up with them to see what their copay was to see if there's a copay uh, coupon that we can uh, obtain. Um, shadowing and going with a home infusion company, we have liaisons on the hospital that do the education, the technical education of an infusion pump, which we all as pharmacists, well, hospital pharmacists at least are involved in, but I have no idea what that was. So get, getting that education, um, being able to partner with our liaisons to, to get that knowledge and do that additional counseling. So then when you're able to call the patient when they're home, you know what they're talking about. Um, so it, it's more of that face-to-face -face interaction and proactive counseling that they do that is part of my day-to-day -day functions. Um, now, there's a whole other section of being voluntold to do um, uh, very good opportunities. I'm sure Catherine and Jason have been involved. <laughs> Actually, probably Spencer, too. I've probably roped you into things. Um, part of my other hats that I wear, I'm very involved in um, local and national pharmacy organizations and publications. I have a couple of associate editor positions. Um, so I will constantly put out opportunities. You want to co-author a um, online publication. It's lower risk than, you know, a peer-reviewed journal because it's more an online publication. I am your your reviewer versus sending it out uh, blindly, but it's an opportunity to write a manuscript, maybe a skill that you haven't had an experience in. Um, I get requests to peer review other manuscripts. Do you want to co-peer review? So then you can learn the process of what makes what I think is a good reviewer. Um, do you want to submit posters? I will help you write up the abstract. I will help you make it pretty. <laughs> I will help you with your grammar, Jason. Uh, <laughs> you can't be I need to add I was going to say, I think there's a typo on the handout I heard. Oh. <laughs> he didn't send it to his preceptor, his former preceptor for yeah. editing. Uh, so there are uh, other... <laughs> volunteer opportunities that you can get that go beyond just the rotation and the patient because I think, you know, we're here to, uh, today because we give back to the profession. We want to learn how to, to give back as well. So those additional opportunities. Absolutely. Oh, goodness. Those are all awesome examples of a lot of- Do, do you want to write for me? Do. 
I'm, so, I'm looking uh, for more authors. I can, see one, I can help you with that. <laughs> okay. we, we have... This is being a mock as Orbit. Is, yeah, oh my God, yeah. yeah. I know we have a repeat author in. sitting in this room who has offered it to many of her trainees as well. If you want to put Catherine on the spot, maybe she wants to talk about what that experience is like. we got a microphone coming right your way. Oh, <laughs> Speaking of being told. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so when I was uh, Monica's trainee, uh, she introduced basically to me writing for an online publication that she is a section editor for. And so I have continued to kind of remain involved with that um, publication. And if I have a student that's interested and we're able to identify a topic that is able to, again, mutually benefit uh, my practice, as well as allow the student to practice a skill that they've never um, or they've had less experience with, you know, again, it's mutually beneficial, allows me to learn about the topic that we're learning, that we're writing about, it allows the student to add some more experiences to their resume um, and potentially help with any residency or fellowship applications that they're pursuing. And um, I keep coming back to like the phrase mutually beneficial, but um, yeah, that is <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think um, I'll put on my like pharmacy education manager hat. I oversee an intern program at BMC. Um, just to like give you guys some more examples, one of the things that we do is um, we actually pay our interns to come in and do clinical work. So one of the, the base functions is functioning as an MRT, right? They have an intern's license. They can do technician work, mm -hmm. which is um, doesn't require pharmacist oversight, which is essentially taking a medication history. Mm -hmm. But then we also have them do some level of pharmacist work uh, where they function as an extender, having a pharmacist to go to, such as uh, some a process we call HAT TOC. It's high risk antimicrobial therapy transitions of care. Uh, you know, we have internal data suggesting significant reductions in readmissions, but it's a labor intensive process of calling facilities, making sure they have antibiotics, making sure that uh, these antibiotics fit through certain lines, and it still requires a pharmacist oversight. Um, we have them do vancomycin dosing. We have them look at current anticoagulation um, like patients. So dosing warfarin, making sure that heparin protocols are being followed, et cetera. Um, and we pay them to do that. Uh, and it takes a significant amount of work off of our pharmacists so that they can focus on higher level interactions, higher level interventions, et cetera. Um, I'm curious, is anybody in the audience willing to share maybe one or two examples of a way that you use either students, residents, Fellows uh, as it extenders. Five second timer. Go. <laughs> Catherine's back. <laughs> All right. So I am involved um, at my practice site with implementing a lot of new protocols. And so anytime I do that, I'd like to collect data, which involves often manual chart review, um, which can be time consuming. And so anytime I have a learner, I ask them if they're interested in doing medication evaluation, that allows me to review our internal data, give them um, kind of some experience with doing like retrospective research almost, um, and, you know, do some of those more manual tasks. And then you can build off of that and have them do a poster at a yes. regional uh, pharmacy conference. There's one another person. Um, yeah, so I um, I have residents and students um, extend what I can do in a similar way. Uh, so I am a stewardship pharmacist, and one of the things I do is review our adherence to treatment guidelines. Uh, what I want to do is be able to show statistical significant improvement based on stewardship interventions that I perform. 
Um, I will be honest, a lot of it is data collection. Uh, but what I like to do is offer the benefit of understanding it from a quality improvement IHI approach. Um, so I teach them how to implement quality improvement. I teach them how to know, you know, code an Excel sheet or a red cap to do a lot of the assessment for them. And then returning, you know, I'm a little bit honest. And I say some of this is just going to be front data collection, but it's beneficial in the hospital. Um, additionally, I think there were some things that I think are appropriate for uh, probably high-performing students and residents, um, such as drug monographs when we bring in the formulary um, or developing institution-specific treatment guidelines. I feel very comfortable giving them the opportunity to look into those things, pull appropriate data, um, and format some of the things that um, honestly would just be time-consuming for me, but they get that exposure. I end up bringing them to PNT or have them present to at my Antenna Privilege Stewardship Subcommittee. Um, so they get that benefit of exposure, and I get the benefit of you know, taking a few things off my plate that really are of low risk division care, but allow me to extend and focus on more clinical facing uh, work. Um, I want to comment on something that Spencer said. He mentioned that, you know, sometimes you give trainees scum work. Um, and maybe I misheard you, but that's what I'm going to call it. Um, and I, I think it's important to actually give that to our trainees. Cause I think oftentimes we feel pressure to just give like the glamorous parts of being a pharmacist. And there's a lot of things that we need to do that are, you know, the boring, mundane day-to-day -day tasks that we have to complete. And I think passing that along to our trainees to show this is an important part of your, your job, but explaining why it's important like you do. Um, when I present it to them that way, oftentimes, most times, unless they haven't been telling me, um, they don't have a problem doing that because you've explained the why. It's not, you're not dumping work on them, but you're giving the, the background rationale. It's yeah. like you've listened to former episodes of ours. You literally <laughs> talk about. I told you I'm the Android <laughs> subscriber. <laughs> <laughs> we, talk about, we talk about making sure that the learners understand the why, because if you don't give them the why, they don't. Um, I mean, don't find out. I'm cutting Jason off now. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I got you. I see you on this side. Working with you here, and every January we get a dumbbell. Um, pretty close to 800 comprehensive menu views that are due within a very short amount of time. We were very fortunate in being able to keep a couple of our average students on board full time. They do a better job than we do. <laughs> we see it as thought work and they're really into it. They find things and they really um, really help us a lot with that. Mm, that's a great example. Thank you. Great example. Allison, I think we're yeah, back to you too. The only thing I was going to add to that is I think this is huge. You talk about data collection, you talk about MedRex. This is incredible experience that you can leverage even for a student who might be completely pivoting out of pharmacy um, and going into a role such as the industry. So I think some of those days back in the hospital looking at EMRs and pulling data, it's huge. It's like a pivotal experience. Whereas my preceptors probably thought that it was just, you know, busy, the grunt work that they didn't want to do. It's became like almost like a cornerstone of how I conduct my research and utilize those skills day to day. So I think truly like every experience is valuable and um, can be useful for a learner, even if their career goals don't align with maybe the work that you've given them. Yes, yeah, so I, I think what I'm hearing is not only one, I'm hearing that a lot of is um, explaining the value, right? Like explaining the value of why this has a larger impact. But I think back to like, even when I, I was precepting at, at Boston Medical, right? Sometimes showing the learner the end impact, right? Can also be extremely valuable. 
right? Something that like, you know, a perfect example, and I know Jason will, will resonate with this, is the impact of medication discharges and the impact of, of post-discharge phone calls. And when you see the impact and how that prevents readmission, you are you are contributing to the overall thing, even though it might not seem as glamorous as publishing in a, in a journal with Monica Mahoney. Um, <laughs> But like, you know, the, the end value is, is there. So I think both those concepts are really critical in order to execute on this. Uh, I think we should talk about this actually in our last episode around MedRex, that like you could do 15 MedRex and on the 16th, you get like a mind blowing case that like really challenges your critical thinking skills, your clinical thinking skills, et cetera. And that, that repetition is not a bad thing. It actually exposes you to a broader variety of experience in that one task to deepen your knowledge and understanding of how to complete it. And I think a lot of times uh, learners see it as diminishing returns when it's not like a straight linear diminishing return over time. It is more a bumpy road of like, sometimes you find these really awesome cases that have a lot of, of real value. And then, yeah, you have your run of the mill, three med, med rec, it's kind of boring, but um, there is some serious value in those. And, and I really appreciate you bringing that up, um, Monica. And I think it like increases efficiency, which is the one thing I just wanted to mention is um, at my new institution, I'm so sorry, Catherine, we have Epic. And <laughs> we've um, created patient reminder lists or reminder lists um, for phone calls and lab reviews. And so regardless of whether or not we have something scheduled that day in terms of a patient teach or new med recs for a new start chemo, we always have a reminder list that our, my students work off of as their kind of cue for the day. So these are patients who maybe newly started oral chemotherapy for, with our example, where they're just calling to check in on adherence, tolerance, asking specific directed questions about their medication, making sure they're taking it correctly, seeing if they have any questions. Did they even get the medication? Um, and so I think that's a really helpful system that I have in place now that I didn't before and has made a huge impact on my ability to focus on some of the more higher level clinical tasks while also giving the students an opportunity to view a profile and say, oh, they didn't have labs today. Like maybe we have to call the patient to remind them to have labs drawn, which, you know, anybody can do. So I think it's, um, that's been one tremendous, had a tremendous impact on me in terms of workflow and allowing for students to have some form of involvement without me having to direct them every single day on what they need to be doing. It's a great point. I also resonated with that discussion about efficiency. Like it's okay to teach your learners how to build efficiency in any task mm -hmm. that they're developing because um, every task has similar processes towards developing efficiency and thinking about how just the task itself has to get done. Every and, time I call an outside specialty pharmacy, I learn just one little tidbit more of how this call could be <laughs> more streamlined. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, great point. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. So, you know, as, as learners are, are taking on a bunch of these tasks, right? Um, it, I can sense, and, and I experience this as well, some learners get extensively frustrated with the process of, of a lot of these tasks, right? So how do you manage frustration amongst learners that are going through maybe some of these simpler tasks that we're talking about and et cetera? I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier is the why. Um, right now, it's the end of spring two rotation for URI appies, and they are 
ready to graduate. They're so close <laughs> to the finish line. And at last week, I was like, we really got to amp up the events. We're trying to justify more positions. And they were like, <laughs> which is our intervention system for those of you not familiar. So I think then I, you know, I sat down and said, well, number one, you're staying within the health system. So you better <laughs> learn how to do events or at least continue to do them. Yeah. And learning that this is a, a necessary part of our process to justify our work will help them. The more experience they have with it, the more it becomes second nature, the easier this is going to be where you just click in quickly as you're doing it and you don't even have to think about it anymore. And so I think that really connected with this particular learner. Um, and I hope that, you know, whatever the why is that sharing that most of the time, at least in my experience, has helped it to click. Pass it along. No, no, you're, you're spot <laughs> on. Uh, if we're testing, it's just to keep ourselves together. Oh, yeah. Um, Allison, I think one of the things that I'm like, we have a great list of like great activities that um, could potentially, uh, you know, utilize learners as extenders. But when you think about the task in general, say someone wants to go home and think about, um, boy, at my shop, these are the things that I have. What would be characteristics that you might look for in that task to say, this is a good task for a learner? Like, uh, I can fill in some gaps, but I'm curious like, what your perspective is. Yeah, I, I think how things translate to the industry are, are so different, but to kind of makes me think about like, how do you, you re-engage someone who has started to check out? And I feel like that can be really difficult because I know when I start to check out myself and I feel like I have pretty high motivation in a lot of the things I do. It's like sometimes hard to come back. Um, so I don't know if I've quite figured that out yet. I think just trying to think about, I know we keep saying, come back to the why. And like, there there has to be a why outside of you. Mm -hmm. There always has to be something that's driving this other than I want to graduate or I want to get a job or I want to check this box on my resume or I want to make some dollars there has to be <laughs> I need to put food on the table um there is something else so I I think the only the thing that I leverage within myself and I try to leverage with learners is just like building excitement in the mundane and it sounds kind of silly and a little delusional um but it can be that way. And, you know, I, my pharmacy background is I worked in hospital pharmacy, but I love community pharmacy. Like I love independent pharmacy, talking with people. There's always something exciting to pull from day to day working, whether it's with coworkers or patients or anything. So sometimes I think when I see someone really checked out, it's like, let's relate this to something that you do mm. latch on with, even if it's just engaging with technicians or anyone, yeah. um, there's a lot of value there as well. I think even even one other point is is sometimes even tailoring it and allowing the learner to to make something there and, and as a preceptor be a little bit flexible with like the end product. So for example, if the the learner is working on I don't know a project or or some kind of abstract or or maybe even a paper review article, if they have a different idea, I think like in internally if they're excited about a certain aspect of it help tweak that a little bit, right? Like yeah. let the learner like run with some of the endpoint as long as they're on track. And I think that's like another important thing, right? Sometimes the learner brings in a fresh perspective and it opens your eyes to seeing things new ways. And if you're, if, if we're one-sided and saying, no, this is the way we want it to be done, 
sometimes that can make the learner feel like you said defeated or like mm-hmm. get to the end of the line but if there's that excitement and, and real movement I think you know you can yeah. kind of stimulate more excitement out of the out of the learner I think that brings up a great point, empowering the learner to have a critical eye. I know when I was coming into these situations, it felt, everything felt so intimidated. It was like, this is a well-oiled machine. They've got it under control. (laughs) What am I going to add here? And this is actually a question I had for Monica is how do you empower your students? I don't know. Am I allowed to do this? You can ask everyone. Okay, great. For my job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you. But how do you empower your student to know that they can speak up and say, hey, I'll call the patient in two days. You know, they've carved a role out for themselves in that team. And I think that's the biggest thing that I try to do and is really, really difficult to give them that. Not where I thought you were going with that question, so I had a different answer prepared. Yeah. So I'm going to answer the question that I thought you were going to okay. ask first. Yeah. Um, and um, how do you empower your student to make mistakes? And and, yeah, that's a very important question. As and well. I think, again, as I became more comfortable and confident in being a preceptor, um, maybe I started caring less about what other people thought about me, and I started sharing failures. If something went really bad, I'd be like, man, I sucked in there and this is why, and this is how I wish I could have done things differently. Um, anytime my trainees do a presentation and interaction, I try to debrief with them and say, how do you think it went? What do you think um, went well? How do you think you can improve? And I found that when I share those as well, that is very helpful for them. Um, and it honestly took me being a preceptor for a while and then also having children and learning how to communicate <laughs> with toddlers that I'm like, wow, these are really good communication transferable skills that I wish I had earlier. Um, But just sharing, you know, we're very quick to share successes, but I think we should also be open in sharing failures as well, because I think our trainees learn um, that one, everything is not as great as it may seem, but then also how to recover from that. Um, But to answer your other question of how do you get the trainee to the point of thinking proactively and inserting themselves and being like, I'm going to call this. Um, It depends on who you're dealing with. And sometimes it's point blank saying, I want you to tell me when you're going to call them. Um, And, you know, this is why it's important that even though the universities have us do midpoints, which is good that's built into the contract, I also think it's a good practice for us to do that. Even, um, you know, some trainees request feedback Fridays every week at the end of the week. What's one thing that you're doing well? What's one thing that I want you to improve next week? And calling out those areas for improvement because maybe the trainees aren't used to seeing them, but through repetition of you telling them, um, they could start thinking about that for future rotations or maybe they have no idea what your expectation is and this is an opportunity for you to give really small wins for them to do for next week i think allison truly is gunning for our job because this is a perfect segue conversation into our second topic that we want to talk about and that's tailoring the rotation to skill of the learner And I think like a lot of these conversations with encouraging students to make mistakes and and constantly having this feedback and continually refining an experience over over the course of four, six, eight weeks. I think some schools are eight weeks anyway. Um, But um, Brittany, you you talked about this a a little bit at the beginning of of having some baseline assessments for tailoring rotations. Um, Are there specific points that we can give for 
for ways of doing that? Like, do you give, or and this can be to anyone, do you give baseline assessment tests, mm -hmm. et cetera, or anything that, to really gauge that assessment or from baseline? Fair, yeah. Um, so I don't give a baseline assessment because I just assume they don't remember anything from oncology before, <laughs> even though it was potentially a month ago. I'm sorry. It's just from my experience, I assume they're just, they don't remember. Um, and so we will have conversations in the first weeks about patients where we're going through patients receiving bevacizumab and how does that work? And if you can't tell me the mechanism of action, even though you had multiple exam questions on that, I know <laughs> <laughs> that you're not going to be counseling a patient on bevacizumab today. But I think I do like basically soft things where I'm assessing your comfort level. Oh, would you feel comfortable calling the doctor's office about this question? If the answer is like, they're freezing, they can't even answer the question, then we scale it back a notch. And we do the smaller scale things like calling CVS to see if this prescription has been filled and what's the copay. Um, so those things that are hopefully easy wins that they're, they won't fail. Um, and you know, if they do freeze and something goes wrong, then I just coach them through that. So I try to start off with the easier things so that they can gain confidence in having the more significant interactions with patients over time. Um, and like I said, I will ask them what they self-identify as their areas of weakness and things that they're working on, what their strengths are. But I ask for their CV and I review it briefly and then what they're trying to gain from the rotation. So we have a conversation on day one that says, this is what it looks like. What's not there that you want to see there? What do you feel comfortable doing? What's the cadence with which we do this? And then we just go from there. Yeah, I, uh, absolutely. Courtney, the... Uh, I want to put a little context of like how we were all chuckling about them not remembering things. Like as someone who also practices critical care, you know it's different than oncology and it's not as good as cool. Dave. Yeah, it's cool. uh, and I'm sure Monica hates that I went to critical care because she thinks I should go on ID. But, You're my one uh, failure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm a great tech issue. Long time, long time, a lot of that shit. Um, coming up. But uh, I think like the pieces, like all of those are highly specialized. And I think even like fellowship, like, right, that's highly specialized compared to like, um, like general internal medicine practice. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to assume that like any learner that comes in is going to come in with a zero experience. Totally. Um, yeah. and so, like, I didn't practice yeah. Spanish today, so I don't remember how to say certain things. It's a very normal, I don't judge them for not remembering. I asked them to review the material before, but most of them are coming from another rotation. They might work 20 to 40 hours a week. So the expectation isn't that they walk in the door knowing that information. That's why we have this rotation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can get behind that as quick. <laughs> Do you ever... I guess like on this topic, are there ever times where you adjust the expectations of the rotation, right? So like you're, we're, we're on this example of maybe like in, in fellowship or, or in college where people always come in with like a, I don't know, lower baseline than normal. Do you ever adjust the expectation of the outcome knowing that they all come approximately at the same baseline? I hope I'm making sense. Oh, there's, yeah, there's nods all around. I think I don't want to be the only one to speak to this, but yes, I'm going to let Monica go. Well, I mean, everything that we're saying now is just in theory because it's not any previous trainee that's been listening. We're not talking about you. Right, we're right. just projecting. If if this were to happen, how good, good would point. we adjust? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I had a resident whose name was maybe Shmation Mordino. <laughs> no. Um, it, 
I, I yes, you're always going to have people in different stages. You know, um, trainees have different things going on in their lives. They might have personal things going on. They might have jobs that are going to be completely different than what you're doing. They might just lose steam and for whatever reason, not be as performing maybe as strongly as they were before. And I think our job as preceptors is to make accurate assessments of where they are and come to a happy medium. Um, try to meet them where they are, but at the same time, we have jobs to do. We need to make sure that we're meeting the basic requirements of our jobs. And how can you tailor that? Do you have a partner that maybe can have the student, uh, have the trainee shadow them for you know a day or two if it's a different interest area that they have? Um, can you give them project days to work on some at home things? Um, do you and the trainee need time apart? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> do I need time apart? <laughs> Um, and I think transitioning over to the ambulatory side, uh, going forward, we have a hybrid schedule. You know, I am not on site every day and our institution is committed to realizing this is the way that healthcare is going and we are not going to be on site. And honestly, sometimes those days apart are glorious. <laughs> Both you and the trainee can, can just be productive and work on things that you need to do. Um, if I have a bare minimum of we at least have to talk about one or two patients, we have an hour block schedule that we'll have a, a Zoom call or a Teams call or talk about the patients, we'll get our activities done, and then you're free to, to do your other rotation longitudinal requirements that you need to do. And I think those periods of away time, debriefing, opportunities to work on other um, activities can bring you back refreshed and ready to, to possibly tackle. But absolutely, I, I think adjusting, you know, okay, maybe we need to signal back, maybe I need to model more. Um, uh, something that we haven't talked about is providing templates for trainees if you're collecting data. Nobody knows ID. And then, oh my goodness, nobody knows outpatient ID. I am from, I am connected to an inpatient academic residency. They are, you know, hammered home with all their inpatient labs. They come to outpatient and they're like, what do you mean we don't have daily serum creatinines? I'm like, you're lucky if you have a monthly serum creatinine, you know? Um, so it's, it's starting to, from scratch and, and having to do a check on yourself and, and check on the training. Again, all theoretical has not happened. Absolutely. And I think like maybe thinking about your theoretical person, Schmason Schmordino, mm -hmm. um, let's say he he wasn't like the challenging learner, but maybe like the learner that just comes in and like naturally has like fellowship driven aspirations and like knows and understands fellowship. Allison, what, what do you maybe do to tailor the experience to take them to the next level? So they come in way above where you expect. How do you challenge them to go uh, to that next level in case, you know, Schmason wants to go to industry? <laughs> or well, so, so I think, honestly, I, mean, I might have a biased opinion, but I think that learner is, might be at higher stakes because this might be the only time that they get a view of clinical pharmacy or the health system or the hospital or anything before they go off and they're essentially at some parts of their job, the face of the health system. Mm -hmm. So it's huge that you give them the full experience. Um, and honestly, I, I think the tricky part is they might not realize that at the time that like this is their last maybe direct patient care in their life. And that's huge. Um, so I think just like they're highly valuable experiences, whether that person goes into industry the next day, whether they drop out completely and they have to live their life and interact with the world as they are. Like 
they're just really, I think at the end of the day, that's what I tried to draw back for my rotations um, in a setting that was very different than what I do daily is that these are just general life experiences and really, really valuable to have in your back pocket. And so that's, if you ever have someone who is going into the industry and they're like, oh, I'm not going to do this tell them that you heard that this was important and the say tell them that this is really important because it's something more valuable than they'll ever um, think it applies to every setting and, and something else to remember is that you're their preceptor on paper but you're not the only one you have a network you have other colleagues in your institution uh if they have a quote-unquote higher end goal or they're destined to greater things what are the steps they need to get there? And then can you reach out to your network of people to offer them whatever the next step is, whatever opportunity they would need to apply for a fellowship, apply for a residency, you know, get a job in critical care. If that's where they want to go. <laughs> I feel like, you know, the priority impact matrix where it's like, you know, high priority things that are low in low effort you do right now. Um, the, the high effort, but low impact things, like that's the bucket that you pull from when you have a high achieving learner. Because those are the things that I just never get to on my to-do list, but could potentially have an impact or are gonna help me in some way. So those are the kinds of things that I'm like, oh, thank God you're here. Like this is something I've been wanting to do forever. You know, you get through my patient list in an hour as opposed to the four hours it takes the other learner. Let's pull this project out and talk about this case report I've been meaning to submit for two years. You know, like those types of things that just sit on your the end of your to-do list that they would ideally still gain significant experience from, but that you don't always have the opportunity to pull out. Mm, I like the like pulling in of the impact effort matrix and like mm -hmm. the concept of how you or like high performing learners. Like yeah. I think that's a really awesome perspective. I'm like, we're not just gonna just hit the like, basics, but, <laughs> but how are we gonna hit the next kind of thing? Uh, and Brittany brings up a good point. You know, mm -hmm. uh, hopefully you have some kind of tracking mechanism of all these great ideas, sure. but time that you don't have. Um, Jason, since you've known me, I moved to the, the new office. I am now a messier person. I have post-it notes everywhere. Every time I'm like, that would be a fantastic idea. I jot it down on the post-it note, slap it in my wall. And then every couple of months or a couple of years, I go through the post-its. Sometimes I make it into a Word document. Other times I condense the post-its into smaller post-its. Um, and every <laughs> once in a while, I have the high achiever come around and I'm like, oh, here's the post-it for you. And then we're able to do MUEs or case reports yeah. or or I swear I don't have MRMs written on my wall because that would be against HIPAA. But, you know, um, just have a some kind of file system or folder that you can pull some of these project ideas from. All right. Well, thank um, So one other aspect in here is as we're talking about, you know, different levels of the learner, um, I'm going to say the, the dreaded word that everyone is sick and tired of hearing for the last three years. COVID has certainly put a, a, a dent on, on precepting in general and forced us to go into a more virtual hybrid. We have a lot of different experiences to, to tailoring rotations, right? Um, Allison, I'm curious on your thoughts here because I know in, in the fellowship world right now, right, there a lot of it is virtual in nature. Um, how have you adapted and, and what tactics do you use? Yeah, it's a great question and something I think we're still figuring out, but um, 
I think working for a global company that was already kind of adapted to that model. So, you know, I have colleagues from all over the world that um, I talk to on a daily basis. And it's a very different type of communication than I was used to when I was in pharmacy school and showing up for rotations and face-to-face. So I think that's where you obviously leverage soft skills in the clinic day-to-day. But soft skills translating over a Teams message or a chat in an email is is really difficult. And they're there as well. So I think it's just something that like I've had to get used to. Um, Whereas like I had to, you know, kind of refine those soft skills when I was talking to people in the clinic. And I've had to do the same thing over teams. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're going to exchange the bar at the moment. <laughs> we are not hybrid today. Would anyone else like a refill all right? Roll the clocks in the Roll another one. Roll it back. Then it's, this is not, thankfully, this is not a virtual happy hour, which we had for a long oh, time goodness. and was, really awkward it's nice to be together but it's the name of the game I think in the industry and it's not going anywhere so um definitely had to learn to adapt to that even when my boss or manager is sending me like 20 teams chat in one minute and I have to like catch up to that I think that COVID just made things easier in so many ways like it's made it it's normalized project days at home like that's been huge for I think our learners and for us like you were just talking about Monica but I found that as students were in different phases in their year depending on you know if they're applying to residency it's match time they're really stressed so having like one project day per week maybe at home or even an afternoon where you let them work on something at home can make a big impact in their you know, ability to get through the rest of the week um, and their mental health. Um, If they're commuting, a lot of them get an apartment for the entire year and maybe their commute for some of their athletes is 10 minutes, but for yours, it's an hour. So they're doing that every day, coming to rounds for seven o'clock in the morning and they're just not used to it like some of us are. (laughs) Um, And maybe we need to take a break too. Uh, So I think it's really helped balance things and prevent and manage some burnout that some of our students were experiencing because many of them have a lot going on outside of what we see. I'm going to throw one more complete pivot at the three of you in, in that we focus this most of the conversation we've had today around the, far, the, 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 the transition to a pharmacist. But, you know, when I was in practice, I had PAs, NPs, mm-hmm. shadowing, um, a lot of different disciplines. Are there different tactics to tailoring learning experiences to different disciplines outside of pharmacists? And this could even be something as translatable as pharmacy technicians, right? Um, So like in other disciplines, are there ways to tailor rotations to others? I think there's a different orientation that you give. Um, We have medical students that come by um, and they have a dedicated morning that they spend with me in OPAT. Um, We've had nursing students going on for their nurse practitioner license that come and spend time as well. Um, And the the difference is that I start off with a very formal, possibly very boring PowerPoint presentation (laughs) uh, on what is OPAT, 
which I also give to my trainees. What the title's too. creative of your of your presentation, right? Actually, for that one, no. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, you found the one. Since then, I have multiple national OPET chats with pharmacists and it's, other physicians and other clinicians, so we're good. Every once in a while, we need to aim low, people, and it's okay. <laughs> Um, so I give a very informative PowerPoint presentation, and then I kind of give an elevator uh, spiel or a pitch on what pharmacists do, because I think a lot of the other disciplines may not be familiar with our education, with our level of training, with what we can do. So we start off with the boring to give a baseline, and then we launch into, you know, some of the patient issues that have coming up, some of the questions that the uh, physicians or other clinicians pitch to me, um, and just point out areas that we can be be helpful. And I think it's asking your audience, what are you looking for from me? Like when teaching nurses about chemotherapy, like what are your needs to know? Because I need to know the mechanism of action and like what receptor subunit it hits, but you don't need to know that. So bring me into your brain and tell me like, what do you care about? And what's the absolute need to know one pager um, and getting that kind of template of information from them. Uh, has helped me with that specific experience. But I have to say, I think that's my only out other discipline formal teaching that I've done. What What about you guys? I mean, most of my interdisciplinary education occurs on rounds. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly around providing them like insights on clinical experiences, yeah. uh, using drug products, or thinking about what am I going through on my thought process for making a recommendation for antibiotics on um, sedation, et cetera. Um, it, it's a bit, it's a bit different. It's like a very different experience than like students or residents where I am using them like in my learning. I have not actually had a medical resident spend that much time with me where I'm able to be like, okay, you're going to sit down and learn how to dose bang today, which like, which I would, would be really oh cool. my God, I would love to do that. Right. Like watch their tiny little resident head explode and be like, oh my God, this is what you do every day. Like, yes, this is what we do every day. Like it's not just pick a so, number out of the air. Now we can also send them links to Dr. Glockenflecken's uh, TikTok videos. <laughs> yeah. And that just explains what hospital pharmacy does. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's a great point as well. Um, like he, I don't know how he does it as an ophthalmologist, but he must have a mole in pharmacy that tells him everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they always wear gingham, like... Well, it's always a male pharmacist. Which, yeah. Come on, pharmacy is mostly female. Uh, every, every one of his uh, cast members is male. Yeah, he is one guy. It's a, it's a one man show. It's a bit challenging. Who's someone involved? Ooh. Bring her in. Awesome. You know, it sounds like yeah. a great lady. <laughs> yeah, I think. For me, I think for me, you know, I, uh, most of my experience here was back in the academic setting, but I often took because our 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 onco the oncology clinic that I worked in was primarily like we had pharmacy students and NP and PA students. What I would generally do is not have a sole rotation for the NP PA student, but essentially switch the last two weeks of a rotation. So my pharmacy student would, would work with my PA or NP, and likewise, I would take on the PA or NP student and, and essentially have them lead the conversation of precepting. Tell me how you'd assess this patient, and now I'm going to open your eyes to how I view it as a pharmacist, right, and give them a different lens to look at things, right? They're you know, they, they're looking at the patient in the eyes of a of an NP, PA, and 
you know, pharmacists look at look at patient profiles differently. I think we have a very different approach to that, whether it be from an interaction standpoint, whether it would be from a data standpoint, like there's different mindsets you look at. And um, that's generally how I did it as, as opposed to like a, a whole structured rotation, six weeks or four weeks. Um, it would be like a portion of that. And speaking about using learners as extenders, you can use them as educational extenders as well. If you have a trainee that you send, uh, I have a phenomenal PA. She runs our travel clinic. So now that travel is back. Um, I try to send my uh, trainees with at least half a day with her in her travel clinic. And they think what she does is amazing because imagine if your job is talking to people who are happy because they're going on vacation. Um, they are willing to get the vaccines then. Um, but then also there's opportunity that we didn't plan for, but there's pharmacy counseling. Oh, you're going to be on the zithromycin for traveler's diarrhea. Oh, I identified a couple of drug interactions. Um, oh, the, your insurance doesn't cover XYZ. Let's try to come up with some alternatives. So there's unintentional two-way teaching being done mm -hmm. if you pair your trainee with a non-pharmacist as well. Absolutely, totally agree. I think we love to send our trainees to like medical m and send them to case conference, send them to um, really high-level medical dis medical discussions. Like it's a great way to um, free up a little time for yourself while they still get mm -hmm. education and uh, uh, develop from there. I think um, we always ask our panelists or any guests that comes on our podcast one last question before we pivot to the audience question and answers. Get your questions ready, everybody. Start thinking about them. Uh, we we want to ask you guys, what's one precepting pearl or uh, experience that you've gained from your time uh, as a learner and a preceptor um, that you've taken from a former preceptor and implemented into your own practice? Should I just randomly pick I, one of you? Well, okay, well, Allison seems ready. I think I, well, it's because someone in the audience said this earlier. Um, I started my fellowship, um, which was supposed to be a two-year fellowship, and then I joined my team full-time after a year. So basically, my preceptor became my boss, um, and I cannot thank the preceptors enough in this room for all that they do because I know what my preceptors have done for me and completely built my career and kickstarted it. So um, I understand how challenging it is to be a preceptor and I very much appreciate that. And so I think that's the pearl I'm taking with me is that you can truly change someone's life. Um, and also this person you're precepting might become your employee. Um, in my situation, it worked out perfectly for me to kind of move into that role. And it worked out well because I had had the mentorship and the education and my preceptor trained me as if I would end up being her full-time employee. Um, and so I think that's definitely something that will stick with me forever. What if this learner, learner is mine forever? Um, I'm gonna give it my best shot. Um, so I, I think that's what I would say. That's great advice. Um, so I've kind of dumped on you a lot, Jason. So I'm going to say one clinical thing I learned from Jason. And Jason is the clinician who taught me about um, eosinophilic pneumonia from daptomycin, because I think that case report hit when you were on rotation with me. And you're like, oh, have you thought about this? I'm like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, oh, it's a thing. Um, and every time I have a patient, rarely, that has eosinophilic pneumonia because of daptomycin, I think of you. 
So you live in my ID mind for, for here on then. Um, so you can always learn from your trainees. Um, what I've taken away and tried to model from previous uh, preceptors and mentors is just that humility and that debriefing. You know, share your wins, share your struggles, talk it through. Um, there is a lot, you probably get more from that informal learning than that lecturing and that teaching uh, about how to be a professional, how to be a clinician, how to be a caring individual. My favorite preceptor, um, can I say names? You can say whatever you want, pretty okay. much. <laughs> Dr. Craig Fryer, thank you for being a genius. So my favorite thing about the way that he precepted was that he always like walked me from the basics. So I, what I've taken away is like, never assume that your student knows anything, right? Because maybe you gave that lecture to that student, <clears throat> to all my P3s and 4s who might listen, but maybe you were sick that day. Who knows? Maybe you just weren't having a good day and you didn't remember. Um, so never make an assumption that you know. And when you're teaching them something, start from the first step. So like, you know, this is this because that, and maybe I automatically go here, but my brain has this pathway that has already made those connections for me. So mm. I will take you, he would always say, as you know, and then jump into this like three <laughs> sentence of things that I've never heard before in my life. And it's like mind blown. Um, and so I've started to kind of, or have been instituting that with my learners. And I feel like I see their light bulbs go off. Mm. Um, and so I like to never assume that you know anything and be, and not make them look some of those things up, right? Just bring them with you on that journey of how we got from A to Z. Great advice. Great Absolutely advice. great advice. Great advice to everybody. So now, as promised, we are turning into the audience. Are there any questions for anyone, including you can even ask Spencer for a beer he has over there? <laughs> it might be rolled to you. It might be rolled to you across the floor off the tree, but <laughs> we'd love for any questions for our panel. So you had mentioned um, about, you know, kind of sharing the load of being a preceptor with your colleagues. And um, I feel like with uh, at these students in particular, I've been the colleague that takes the student for a day. Um, so how do you make some of that impact when you only have a student spending one day with you in a clinic that they probably never been exposed to before. I work in GI and rheumatology. And how do you make them get something out of that one, possibly like half four hours or eight hours with you? Yeah, no, great question. Um, it kind of started off with, I don't know, mini interview. Uh, who are you? Where'd you come from? Where do you want to go? You know, it's like that intro to, to interview for residencies. Uh, and I do the same thing. Here's who I am. Here's my life path. This is how I ended up where I, where I am. Um, and then ask, what do you want to get out of it? Um, because there, there might be different things that the trainee wants to take out of. You know, maybe, maybe they're interested in GI or maybe they're interested in being an ambulatory uh, pharmacist, but what specific things would they like to get out of it? Sometimes that will clue you in. Uh, as you mentioned, you only have a couple of hours, so you're not going to be doing that MUE. You're not going to be doing uh, writing an article with them. 
Um, I like to, if I know I have a trainee, I, I like to have a couple of aces in my pocket. You know, can I save a drug info question or two that isn't as time sensitive so I can walk them through? Um, I'm a firm believer in learning by doing. So if I can have an activity for them to do versus just lecturing at them, this is what I do and this is why I'm great. Um, you know, sometimes it works mm -hmm. out that you can have activities, sometimes it doesn't. I think I've, I've had experience here, both in the academic setting and even on the industry side now, where um, a lot of the, so before when I was in ambulatory oncology pharmacist, there's a lot of foreign or, or lack of understanding of what oncology pharmacists actually do, right? So like a lot of it was under giving that student an understanding of the different areas of oncology pharmacy that they could get involved with in an ambulatory role. So, you know, not only do you counsel patients on a day-to-day -day, provide recommendations, but you can work in the infusion pharmacy. You can work in the, on like the decision-making side and administration of oncology. And similarly, like on the, on the industry side, I, I've taken, I took a couple, uh, one or two students last week, even in, you know, a lot of it is like, how do you make a one-day experience impactful? But really it's just opening their eyes to new opportunities. I think like, in general, like as in my in my pharmacy school, like there wasn't as much emphasis on like the expansion of roles in industry. It was solely there's roles as a, a medical science liaison, and that was it. But like there, the the opportunities are endless. So when I have a, a student for a day, I usually just open their eyes to like the the nuances of where their career could go, and sometimes that's enough to be impactful for them moving forward. I have an image of Dave sitting down the training in like a dark room, turning on a projector and just going through a slideshow. This is what an industry pharmacist No, no, no. I don't believe in slides. <laughs> It'll have five zoom now. Well, dating myself a projector. <laughs> I went to school and my professor still had overhead projectors where like their fingers were yeah. projected. Yeah. Shout out to the they had that. Yeah. It doesn't happen all that often. I don't think I need to do that. <laughs> I love it. But the, the last rotation of the year. Oh, goodness. So they know they've got a residency or they've already signed on to CVS or Walgreens. And, the, and what you've been doing all year just doesn't work anymore. Any any tips? Well, I don't offer trainee rotations. The last block. No. Easy way out. I don't because I know that I'm going to get my PGY2 residents at the end of the year. So my students are usually at the beginning of the year, which is a different issue. Um, but to, to answer your question, it kind of goes back to what uh, some of us have talked about. It's finding that common ground. You signed on to be a community pharmacist. Fantastic. Um, we need you. you. know, You play a very important role. What aspects are you going to be responsible for that overlap with our patients? Okay, we're going to send that prescription for an antibiotic or antiviral. What do you need to know? How are you going to counsel them? How are you going to look up the interaction? When do you know to reach out to the clinician? So trying to find that common ground um, and inspire them to become passionate about this really niche role of pharmacy that I care about. If that doesn't work... You have their grade. <laughs> yeah. Say the other thing you tell them is if you haven't realized it yet, pharmacy is a very small yeah. world. Oh yes. Yeah, well, you <laughs> may not want to stay at CVS or Walgreens your whole life. And I may know the person that you want to interview with. Okay. I called a CVS pharmacy last year uh, because I forget the reason, maybe we sent a prescription over or something. And I'm like, oh hi, this is Monica calling from Beth Israel. And my old 
pharmacist from when I was an intern 20 years ago. There you go. Do the math. Answered. She's like, Monica, this is so-and-so. I'm like, oh my gosh. So of course, you know, we're all busy, but we have a couple of minutes of catching up. How are you doing? Your kids are how old? Oh my gosh. And then we got down to it. So absolutely pharmacy is a small world. Even if you don't think your areas overlap, oh, that's community. Oh, that's industry. Oh, that's critical care. You will run into the same people. And make them listen to what Allison said earlier, because maybe that's their only experience in that little silo of things. Like if I stepped into a community pharmacy today, I would learn so much and bring that back and say, oh, like this is, it just gives so much context to the calls that you make and increases your own efficiency in the work that you do, because no matter what, you're going to interface somehow. Um, and you, there's always an opportunity for learning. Maybe it's just communication, task mm -hmm. management, but like if they're thinking from that lens, then they're, they're just wasting their own time and money. You can also remind them that they're paying <laughs> for this experience. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think to like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, the board's a great example. I think like, oh, that's an excellent carrot. Yeah. Oh, this is a board question. That all of a sudden they yeah. start listening and paying attention. Right. <laughs> I think we spent a lot of time talking about like hard skills, right? How do you build the hard skills in pharmacy? But I think every experience interacting with any other professional, any other opportunity is a is a way to build soft skills. And so you can start talking about like what are the soft skills that you want to develop that maybe overlap significantly in this space, such as communicating with patients. Like if you're going to the community, you're talking to people. Even if you're on AmCare, you're talking to people. The only place that might work is critical care. Uh, <laughs> but I will say in the last five years, like it has been talking to patients. It has been talking to patients that just get extubated. It's talking to family. It's, um, you know, making a lot more phone calls than it used to be. So even there, like I'm still talking to people all the time. And there are, there are soft skills that you need to learn every day of your life. And skipping out on it now is only going to hurt you in the, in the I can give you one more example. My, um, and it's actually kind of ironic. So my, I, um, as I was progressing through, through appies, I was set by the time I got to my third appy, I'm going to be a critical care or ID pharmacist for the rest of my you life. failed us all. I failed you both. Yes, I know. When I got to my sixth rotate, like my very final rotation, my last rotation ended up getting canceled. It was in a nephrology clinic and ended up being oncology. And my um, my preceptor, Sarah Scarpacci, for anyone that, that knows, um, she sat me down and said, I know at this point you want to do critical care and I, or critical care and ID. I want you to keep an open mind to oncology and just trust yourself for this rotation and experience this rotation. Not for the grade, not for anything else, but just experience it. Years later, I'm an oncology pharmacist. I'm on the oncology and industry. I've only done oncology. So, you know, keeping an open mind, I think, and in, in, in just having the stu like students keep an open mind into those final rotations can truly have a, a meaningful impact. Even somebody that's sat and already like committed to a residency that was in an acute care space and in a focused on critical care and infectious disease. And I adjusted and made my transition to the ambulatory side, not in acute care, sorry, <laughs> um, in the oncology space. So I think like, just setting that example is a is a good example of um, keeping students' minds open. Other questions? We have four minutes. I think they called us last call. Oh, we did last call already. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> is there anything that other people want to add to the tips and tricks? Because we have a room full of preceptors. So obviously we're only three people with experiences. What experiences would you like to add to the questions that we've answered or talked about today? And you will be featured on Precept Responsible. <laughs> I don't know if that's a plus or not. I'm all right. I guess one thing I will add is um, throughout my time, so I'm a business manager for Walgreens. And a lot of a lot of my job is planning to be effective. Um, and without that planning, I can't really do my job so well. So I have to measure a patient like. Okay, what are you going to do for showing your How are you going to do this? Are you going to do this project? What are your steps that you're going to have to take? Um, and I think that can apply in any point in life. If I, my child has a birthday, you know, my child's turn eight, I'm already planning his birthday party. So I feel like it's just a good skill to have in life. Like knowing that planning will make you more effective in anything, whether it's work, life, life. But I love that you put the responsibility on them. So you're not saying I need to draft by this date, like then we'll go through it together on the state. You're saying what's your plan? Mm -hmm. One thing I would add, just as someone who now talks to students a lot who are on rotation, um, is to your point of using students as extenders and how that helps you. I promise you, it's the work that they most enjoy doing. Because the students that I talk to when I talk about, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? The ones who are like have activities that are for their own growth but aren't necessarily helping you in any way, they're like, yeah, it's just, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning a lot. The ones where they're really doing the things that they see is impacting what your practice setting is, they're like, this is really cool. I really like that I'm doing it. Um, so that's just my comment. Keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, a great point. And I think for them, it's like the why, right? Yeah. Like if the why is like, you're going to go read this article and you're going to get a little smarter. Great. It's like, <laughs> okay, great. I can do that anywhere. Why am I paying X number of thousands of dollars to be here uh, this month versus like, I actually get to talk to a patient, change their therapy, change outcomes. Like, yeah, that definitely speaks to the lot in that why. Thanks, Liz. Uh, also have to say, I adore my critical care colleagues. I really do enjoy you. Thank you for what you do. I don't not like you. <laughs> I like my All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Precept responsibly. Um, as always, you can find us on any uh, podcast platform. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, Instagram or LinkedIn. Uh, we'd be more than happy to interact with you on there. Um, if, there'd be more than one plug. <laughs> <laughs> if the audience, local and virtual and listeners in the future, want to connect with our panelists, what's the best way to get in touch with each one of you via social media or uh, email? Twitter. You. Twitter. Monica, what's your handle? At MMFarmD or MMFarmD. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's the handle. Great. Uh, LinkedIn, Allison Thompson. Uh, Twitter, Hemont Farm. Very classic. We haven't changed the name. Look for the uh, Hemont Forever. Uh, <laughs> exactly. She's not going to work here. I'm trying. I need to pick one. And, and, and lastly, just, just two, two big thanks. One to our producer always that keeps us on track, Spencer Sutton. 
And thank you to, to, to Brett and um, the rest of the College of Pharmacy for having us for our first ever live podcast event. Cheers. 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 Hope you all enjoyed today's episode. We thank you for listening. Uh, I just want to remind people, if you have an idea for an episode or you want to drop an audio comment or question, uh, you know, record yourself 30 seconds uh, on your phone. Send it to us uh, at preceptresponsibly at gmail.com. We also are on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Find all of our episodes on your favorite podcast providers. We also have these as videos on YouTube. Today's episode was produced by Spencer Sutton. Music by Alex Grohl. That's it for Precept Responsibly. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm Dave Hughes. Until next time, thanks all for listening. Uh, so I'm fangirling a little bit as I introduce uh, Jason Mordino and David Hughes of the Precept Responsibly podcast. Uh, I was an early adopter. Of the- <laughs> <laughs> um,